So yeah, you made it through uh, how long of uh, Warnie? Tonight? 50 minutes, but I'd say that's like an hour and 10 with Channel 9 streaming ads. Like, who can watch that? I uh, I turned it on and um, it was like 67 minutes. I was like, no, I can't sit through <laughs> 67 minutes of this. I made it through about 45 minutes, but uh, what, what did you say it was? Like, just a vibe check. Yeah, I don't think this is a comprehensive review of... Is Are we going to call it a telly movie or a television event? Uh a limited oh God, series? No, that's, that's, what, what would that's... you define Warnie as? If you were doing uh, Channel 9 propaganda, then you'd call it the television event of 2023. Um, but I'd rather call it uh, Poo on TV. But that's getting into our review a bit to too much. To be honest, I think the rolling coverage of Shane Warne's death on Fox Cricket was the television event of 2022. <laughs> it would have got more ratings as well than this piece of I shit. I remember watching that in the pub because I was on a Bucks party that day. Yep. And it's almost like, to be honest, what a would Shane rather anything other for a wake than a Bucks party? <laughs> that would be all he wants. Not according to the voiceover in this show, though. But uh, let's 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 intro ourselves and then we'll talk about this travesty. Sure. Uh, well, welcome to the advanced screening. My name is Justin Corbett, and joining me as always is. Uh, Shane Warne's number one fan, but definitely not a fan of the Warney television movie event of the year. Tom Kelly, how are mate, you, mate? I was firmly SCG McGill over Warne. <laughs> I always preferred it when they played two spinners at the SCG. See, uh, Warney, uh, not Warney, uh, McGill got a mention in the first 10 minutes of this show. Uh, McGill's McGill, bowling well, you've been dropped. <laughs> do, you, do you think uh, McGill's sort of um, hit and run abduction will get a reference at any point? Sadly, I don't think this is going to cover that period, but I want to know more about what happened that's with McGill's hit and run abduction. That's a, that's the a telly movie event of the year right there. Um, so we are going to, uh, a bit later in the pod, cover off uh, Tom Cruise's Hall of Fame because... Uh, the proper event of the year, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the longest title in the history of movies, is coming out in about a week's time. So we're going to cover off the Tom Cruise Hall of Fame. There's a billboard. It's I think it's the biggest billboard in the Southern Hemisphere. You know the one when you cross over the Anzac Bridge? Yep, and it's, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it goes, Mission, colon, Impossible Dead Reckoning. Yeah, so the, the title of this movie is Mission, Impossible Dead Reckoning, <laughs> part one, <laughs> and then a little part one at the bottom. But that's why I said in it's coming out in about a week because that sign says July 13th, which makes sense because that's a Thursday, two weeks from yeah. now. But then all the cinema website things say July 8th, which is next Saturday. So I have so no idea when this movie is coming out. Um, screenings, I would say that's the jet. The, the go for mission you've got to get those impossible access dead reckoning. to those IMAX screens before Oppenheimer rolls around <laughs> Oppenheimer uh, and Barbie fighting for IMAX screens on the same release day but we'll talk about them later uh, what we're going to do first is chat about the state of Australian TV which uh, it's really we good because said... Australia won and I stayed up to 4am and it was really fucking great <laughs> Australia has won the cricket. Australia's putting out some good shows that we are watching uh, either one of, but not both Ricky of. Ricky Ponning uh, is doing some really great sat- side mouth to Kevin Peterson on TV. Is, is Ricky Ponning like the best Australian TV talent? I don't know. Oh, he should be. He is. Um, if I, I'm worried that he might be so good that uh, the footy show might, re- might try to revive it with Ricky Ponting as the with host Punter. like they did with, Sl- with Slater a few years ago. 
But before we get to how good Australian TV is at the moment, let's talk about also how bad it is. Um, we briefly discussed at the top, but Warney came out uh, on Channel 9 uh, Sunday night, I believe. Um, we sat down and watched the first episode, and it was poo. Yes. Thoughts. Um, <laughs> That's I it. have some thoughts. Um, do you want me to go first? Well, I'll just I'll just intro it. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, obviously Shane Warne died uh, March last year, kind of out of nowhere. You mentioned that you were at the pub when you heard. Um, I was I got woken up because it was only six months after the uh, Warnie doco on Amazon that I worked on um, was released, and my partner Britt woke me up at like seven a.m. in the morning, being like. Gee, Shane Warne died? Yeah. It's like, what do you mean? And it took me like an hour to process. And then I was just kind of messaging people at work and stuff like, have, has everyone heard this? Um, and I think it was probably two two weeks to a month later that they came out and announced that they were doing a Warne drama limited series. Um, I think it was probably just after his funeral, yeah. state funeral celebration that they did at the MCG. And his kids came out and blasted and said, this is the most distasteful piece of shit ever. It is That's just the announcement. There's no doubt about that. I do have some other thoughts, but there's no... I can't even imagine what they think if if they even put this thing on. Uh, but give me your top line thoughts. It's bad. It's soap opera TV. It's like footballers' wives bad. But in some ways, that was shame. And I Don't actually... try to justify this bad show. <laughs> let, me, let me get through this. Let me get through this. <laughs> so I actually think what sort of genre would typify Shane Warne's life? And what I found with this, with the show is that it, it found it really hard to maintain a really clear narrative at times. And if anything, it's just a bunch of yarns sort of all loosely tied together. Um, and because of that, that it doesn't lean into any sort of natural sort of film genre, but it definitely leans into television and it definitely leans into soap opera. The film does too, but also Shane's Warne, Shane Warne's sort of public life and private life was very much a soap opera sort of aesthetic and melodramatic. And Shane Warne also had a two-episode run on Neighbours while he was a test cricketer, still playing for Australia. He guest starred on Kath and Kim, this is Shane Warne's bread and butter that it should be done in this pop TV week style soap. And it's actually fitting of the person that if you're thinking, for example, Oppenheimer is perfect, that it should be done in a Christopher Nolan scaled <laughs> sort of sci-fi sort of like what weapon have we actually unleashed onto the world? We don't know what we are doing and the possible sort of world ending consequences. And no one's perfect for that. While Shane Warne is also perfect for Monday night neighbours trash TV week shit. It's interesting, like he what you're saying is correct. It if you had waited five years and if you had put time and effort into doing a show properly, then the aesthetics do fit shame worn but this is just so oh, poorly done i think done. the aesthetics have done badly i think the idea of doing it as a soap opera is trashy but i think shane is trashy so that's why i sort of i don't like it but <laughs> I, I i'm forgiving of the trash because it's self-aware 
of what it is, or maybe it's trying to be self-aware of what it is, but I'm actually really critical on the production and how it's been pieced together, where I think what would have been really nice is let's try and piece it together and make it, and for people watching back, put them back in time and place. So at the same time that when Princess Diana died, what is Shane Warne doing? Or when Kylie Minogue is hitting the charts, what's Shane up to? And sort of marrying it up with uh, this Australian life sort of thing, because he is part of that, just he's an Australian icon to, in the same way of Home and Away or Neighbours, like Kylie Minogue or all that sort of stuff that Shane Warne is part and parcel of that and it should have been wrapped up in that same way well what's happening who's the prime minister of australia bowl but warney's fucking ripping him and everything's great and that <laughs> that's i think that is the memory for the vast amount of australians and how we view shane is as a pop culture icon but it's just a but because we are a sporting nation that an all-encompassing sports figure becomes a pop icon you mentioned how um, it was kind of made and in the the setup of the the setup of the program and stuff. And I can tell you uh, from firsthand experience that this was made as just literally a dramatization of the doco that's on right. Amazon Prime. If you want to get Shane Warne's life, go shameless plug for a doco I produced, but go watch the Amazon Prime doco Shane. Because they are doing literally beat for beat the exact same thing. The we opened on the. Could you uh, say that they're running the terrorist playbook and they're doing it play by play? <laughs> play by play, they they open on him playing terribly in the West Indies and getting sacked, whereas uh, the doco opened on his seven hundredth wicket. But then they both go back to like when he wanted to play AFL and then he failed and then he met Terry Jenner and he was at the academy and then he like played a few games and didn't play well. So he went back to Terry Jenner and he met Simone. Like it is just beat for beat, the exact same setup as the doco just done with a script and a guy playing Shane Warne. But speaking of the guy playing Shane Warne, and this is kind of, I think we both read the same article and just kind of like a mention to, Luke Buckmaster at the Guardian, who I used to work with at um, oh, really? the film school, um, he mentioned this, but like I, I wrote it straight away in my notes as well. How weird it is to start a scripted drama with an actor playing a real person with footage of the real oh, Shane Warne. Yeah, it's fucked, right? Like you have footage of the real Shane Warne, and then you want us to then buy into this guy playing Shane Warne, and then you kind of keep going back to archive that intercuts a little bit with the worst shot cricket footage I've ever seen in my life, like scripted cricket footage. How do you just, just go watch the doco then? Yep. Like why, why is this even happening? And then I've thought that in the first three seconds when I saw real shame worn, and then they just compound on that by essentially running narration from the actor talking as if he's Shane worn from the grave about his own funeral yeah. and about his life. And if that popped up every now and then, it'd kind of be like, oh, they needed this to push the story along. But it is like, there is not 30 seconds without narration coming in and kind of saying, and that's when I thought I should do this. And that's when I thought I should do that. And you wouldn't believe what happened next. It's like the, I, I want to 
I feel bad for the guy by for saying his name, but um, Matt Ford, whoever you are, you wrote this, and Jeff Bennett, whoever you are, you directed this. I'm sorry, but the guts, balls, arrogance, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, to have one of our, arguably our biggest sporting star ever in history die and then sit down a month later, put pen to paper and write in his voice as if he's talking to the audience from the grave is like so confounding. Like I was off this show within five minutes when that happened and I just can't understand who gave notes saying that this is okay. It takes a certain amount of chutzpah to oh, actually a, say we're going to narrate this from Shane's perspective from beyond the grave, which I thought was a bit like, that's fucked. <laughs> like if you're if you're doing, there's, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it because I worked on it, but if there's a doco where Shane recounts his story to camera for 90 minutes and then you're going to do a drama about his life, you make yourself different by not putting in voiceover. You make it a full-on like soap opera drama and maybe he intros it and he segues some things and he outros it. But to have another person play his voice recounting his story over every 30 seconds on screen is just wild. Can I make a suggestion on how to make this show instantly better? Oh, a million percent. So, Let's just pitch it now. So, and picking up on what this is, I reckon that it's not... It's not framed from Shane's perspective from beyond the grave. It's Shane then taking the knife to his own documentary and saying, I don't want this. I want this. Get rid of that bloke. He's not important. And Shane almost, I almost think you could have these sort of moments of life. And then it cuts to Shane watching the edit of his life and saying, now, nah, fuck that. I don't want anything. That would of, be like, so much better. Does that make sense? Yeah, because that's what I think I spoke to you about this when we were making the doco, but that's literally what he did. He, um, on the doco, he kind of had um, a thing in his contract that said he had meaningful inputs. They word it very carefully, but he had like meaningful input on the edit, but he didn't have final cut. But once they gave him extensive meaningful input once, he came back like five times demanding we re-interview him, we re-interview these two people that we missed, um, cut this, cut that, add this, add that. So what you're pitching, I don't know if you remember me yeah, telling this or do. you just thought of this. That is literally such a better idea. You use like, whether you use an actor or you just use archive footage or something, like whatever, but have him real time like editing that documentary and he's and him reflecting on those moments of his and life. Muddy the waters. Have a break the fourth wall straight to audience saying this is not and do the whole um, big short of it where it's almost like this is not what actually happened. The the real story. I'll is tell way you more what boring, happened. But this is way more entertaining. And isn't that's yes. why you love me? That is such a good idea. Fuck, we should be in TV. What are we don't, doing? And don't and Shane <laughs> is a sort of a guy who would break the fourth wall. Yes, he did. He did all the time. Like the, I think the, uh, even in this, they have a couple of interviews where he's well. The, the Parkinson's one right at the start is like he's talking about his own celebrity status. Like that's breaking the fourth wall yeah, immediately. So I think it would actually be really interesting that if he had done, almost, and I'm making a, like you haven't seen Fleabag, but like Phoebe Waller Bridge. I've watched Fleabag. Oh, you have, yeah. So you get yeah, yeah, the whole idea Fleabag. where Shane breaking the fourth wall, going straight to camera, and saying. This is my story. This is how I saw it on the big show. 
and sort of showing it. And again, people might not have liked that, but I think... No, no, that sounds but great. play with it. Don't show this as, oh, this is what happened. Because all the Shane stories, there's a bit of a truth, there's a bit of a lie, there's a there's elevation to it. There's yes. It's scandalous. And it's always... The, the fiction is always better than the truth. Yeah, we had a, a few moments in the doco where kind of we'd ask him a question about like the bookkeeping scandal or the um the drug scandal and things like that. And he reacts in that way of just like frustrated and that's not how it happened and this is how it happened. And I never called my mum a drug cheat. I never said anything like that. Like he's very offended. So you could 100% see a scripted show of this where like directors are putting up an interview with someone else telling the story and him being in the editing booth saying, that's not how it fucking happened and kind of like correcting this and stuff. That'd be great. Or like Shane saying, this is not how it went down. I don't agree with this, but everybody agrees. This is such a better story to tell at the bar. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I got through 45 minutes, um, which is more than halfway. So I think I'm entitled to nitpick one or two things really quickly. But... um. The bowling action? Uh, I, I stopped at the bowling action. Tra- like everything that was fictional cricket related was horrendous. Yes. They were using, they would use like archive footage from behind Warn and then cut to like a right kind of not, a camera that like doesn't 45 exist. degree, 45 degree angle over the pitch. Yeah. Camera that doesn't exist. That's a great way to put it. Just like on the actor playing Warn that they've muddied up to make look like archive footage as well. Um, I stopped at 45. I don't know why you stopped at 50, but I stopped at 45. So we could record right now. <laughs> so we were, okay, good. I stopped because about an hour ago, so I had time to finish, but I found that I was just sitting there yelling into my notes app in my phone. <laughs> so I just had to stop. It's like, this isn't how it happened. I would love to know if there is anybody that worked on this who actually knew Shane Warne. Oh, probably Or if zero. they're just going, yeah, it feels like, it literally feels like, not to sound arrogant, but they just watched the doco and then made a drama based off the doco and then filled in some gaps. The show for the Gadding Ball essentially makes it out like Warren and TJ had this plan to just kind of bowl an over in straight, get your eye in, figure it out. And then when he bowls the Gadding Ball and it spins back, Terry Jenner jumps up. It's like, that's not what we planned, but great ball. Like the doco... For the Gadding Ball, Warney literally says to camera, I got on the pitch. My plan was to just spin the ball as hard as I could, show them how much just I could spin the it. ball, send them a message, rip it off the deck and see what happens. It's complete opposite to what they put in the show. Anyway, and that was artistic license. That was also Warn. Isn't it the yarn about the South Africa 99 World Cup where the, the, the whole story is the arm is literally hanging off the shoulder. It's fucked. And he's almost like, I just need five overs, just rip it. And yeah. he does and wins the game and gets him into the final. But th- that's also why we love the character as well. Um, the other, the, the bowling action I wanted to make a really clear point of, and I know this is really, this is almost bullying now because... If you look at my favourite film, Heat, you've got Val Kilmer is doing military <laughs> training to fire an AK-47. I want to know what this bloke did to bowl a flipper because I reckon it's fuck all. 
I think they said when they were in the casting room, uh, have you played cricket before? And he said, yeah, I played uh, under 16s, third grade. And they said, cool. great, you're shame worn. Because so, the action is so... It's almost like me trying to do Warney. And I would do a worse job than this actor, for sure. But I'm not being paid to be in a, to be shame worn either. So... No. John John Wick, uh, Keanu Reeves trained for three months on learning how to reload and load on firing ranges. Tom Cruise practices, I think, in his uh, Dead Reckoning film, he drives a motorbike off a cliff and they did that eight times just to make sure they got the shot. Why couldn't they give this guy a week of bowling Or maybe lessons? don't even get that guy. Just get every time where it's bowling, just get a body double who's just a great cricketer who can, who can turn it. Because you can tell all the, the close-ups of the hand and the shoulder, it's the actual actor, and it's fucked. Where if you just it's get good. like a great cricketer or somebody who's playing second 11 for Victoria, just say, come, throw your arm over, or even get you know get Cameron White, come and get him over. It'd be about yes. 40. But it's like, come turn <laughs> a few. Can you do that for us? Cameron White was pretty much a Shane Warne like body double like Saddam Hussein used to have. Yeah, he could just bat a bit better. Hey, Wardy um, had a good 05 Ashes series. Uh, when did he score 99 and got caught that on the That was against game? New Zealand, like, 01. But um, he got he had two 90s in that 05 Ashes. Um, can I just make a, a quick, an, a second pitch? Yes. Um, because my favourite sports doco in, leaning into this is um, the Diego Maradona doco from a couple of years ago. I think it was 2018, 2019. And I know you're not a football soccer person, but just Maradona is yarn is way better than Warney's. Way way yep. better shit happens. It's way more fucking dramatic. Um, but the thing is, they don't look at the whole life. They look only at like a three year period where he's playing in Italy, and he's on coke. He is living with prostitutes. He's involved with the mafia. His form is up and down. He wins a national championship. He turns the Italian nation against him, but his city against Italy. Like, all this shit happens. But (laughs) there's other stuff that happens in his life before and after that time period, which are as equally as dramatic. But they've picked that time period, and it's almost like we don't need to chart the entire life story. We can just focus on these three years and we're going to tell a really clear and cohesive narrative. And that narrative will act as an entire metaphor for the character that existed before and after this time period. And I think you could have done that with Warren, with the divorce, the cheating in that early to mid-2000s, all leading up to the 05 Ashes series, where... Oh, yeah, he's his wife comes across for the 05 Ashes, lands and turns around and flies back home six hours later from like a 25-hour London flight that's, because of the cheating stories. That's the most interesting thing because he that is at the point where his personal life is at his lowest ebb, but his professional life, it's the best performance he's ever given. Those levels, that's the most interesting thing. And I think if you, you did like 90 minutes on that, I think there's something in there. Yeah, and he was... Um... Like, he'd go out and bowl the best he or anyone else has ever bowled. Then he'd go home and get drunk and smoke five packs of cigarettes in his hotel room and cry and call Michael Clark on the room phone every night, asking him to come look after yeah. him. And then he'd go back out the next day and bowl the best he's ever bowled in his life again and again and again. And Australia loses that series, but he is so totemic in that series in the sense that, get on my back, I will, I will pretty much bowl our way to victory 
if you give it to me. They didn't win, but the whole idea is that performance. He's, did he take 50 wickets? He took 40? 47. Over five uh, test matches. Lose, over five test matches, almost 10, 10 a test match. Um, he won man of the series despite being in the losing team. And the Barmy Army gave him a standing ovation when he went off the field at the end of the last test. Right, that's a, like while this personal tragedy is, is occurring of his entire way of his own making, that's a fascinate that's a fascinating character. Yeah. Um I think we can move to happier stuff. Sure. Uh what is um so I'll, I'll go real quick because I know you've got a bit more, but no. um, I only touched on it last week. So I want to kind of um, uh, just give it a bit more airspace because uh, I've watched a few more reps, but the clearing on Disney Plus, this is one of the best show, best Australian made shows I've watched in a very, very long time. Um, Guy Pierce, Miranda Otto. Um, it's... It's hard to explain the show without revealing twists, so I won't go into too much depth. The first episode ends with like a really, really big kind of reveal, but essentially it is about, it's based, like it's inspired by a real cult, um, but like you can't be spoiled because they're not following the same story of that cult, but it's essentially this cult out in, um, in kind of like the wilds of Melbourne, I'm pretty sure, where uh, this woman claims to be essentially like some savior like a christ figure leading a religious cult and she's adopted up a whole swath of kids who were born uh by teen mums and essentially adopted them out from under the mums and brought them into her family bleached all their hair blonde and told her her followers that her children are the people that will like raise them up into uh their next life essentially and um, it follows that past story and the present day, one of the kids who managed to get away from the cult. Um, and I, th- yeah, there's a lot of twists and there's a lot of weird stuff going on that I won't get into, but I'll just say that it's very dark, very grim, um, but very, very well made, which is something that you can't say a lot about, like we just didn't with Warney, but very well made. So that's on Disney Plus and here's me plugging an Australian show so it must be good. So clearing, definitely get on it. It's um, one of the good ones. Um, I want to pick up on something else where I like that you, that there's, I've got a segue to talk about cults. Uh, the B2 to Advocate has a show on Paramount Plus. Oh, I haven't watched any uh, yet. I'm not a huge fan of the podcast because I, I do find it's, uh, I don't know, a bit circular at times. It's, Oh, I love what they're doing as a news organization, as a brand and all that sort <laughs> yeah, of stuff. Yeah. The the documentary sort of series, well, the, uh, investigative reporting, or it's not even that, it's almost reading a Wikipedia page yeah. on a person. And it's great. It's four corners for Gen Y. Is it? Is it like they're obviously, the two guys are obvious, and this is why I never got on the podcast, because the two guys are obviously playing characters, yes. and I can I like the writing on their Instagram posts. I find the characters they play a bit great. I in. think it's the podcast medium where I think it works. And again, we are pure amateurs. They are pro- they are much better than us in, in, in oh, a yeah. medium and yada yada yada. Please get us on the Diamantina Podcast Network. This is the original <laughs> idea of why we're having a podcast that we didn't get because they now have a film, TV, podcast. But who cares? 
Yeah, sorry. Um, what did I say? Uh, I, I meant to say um, the Petuta Advocate podcast is fantastic. It's one of my favorites, and I would love to collaborate with them at any time. Uh, this podcast is not brought to you by the Petuta Advocate podcast, but maybe one day soon. <laughs> Seamless. I, I think the characters work really well in a TV format in the style of... I know Roy and HG are more radio now, and they're very successful at radio, where I think they hold that, that the characters come across better in a TV context. And... The, the interviews that they get, they, they get um, and how they summarise the sort of big ideas of Australian life are fantastic. And they're very, very The thorough. interviews look really so the, good, yeah. The first episode looked at the Hillsong Church and Brian Houston and the sort of cover-up of like his father being a pedophile, pretty much. And it was cutting. It was raw. It was fucking great. And maybe the ABC does that. And the SBS probably does it too. But I'm not fucking watching it. I'll give it a watch. I can I I buy into what you're saying in the sense that like them playing like characters as reporters and stuff would be a lot better on the TV medium where you actually play characters like that and present it like that. So I'd, I'd get into and it. And I think it's it sits within the Australian tradition in some ways of like somebody like Norman Gunston who played like that sort of spitballing reporter that the bit of a deal when Gough Whitlam resigned from Parliament or not from Parliament resi- well was dismissed as Prime Minister and he's on the steps when Gough's doing the speech. But it's in we have a tradition of that in Australia, but it's also journalism is becoming into that sort of realm where it's almost like new media sort of shit we can take the piss out of it but also try and do the legit things similar to what like the daily show sort of does or had has done in the past um what was the other thing uh deadlock yes so i watched the i haven't got i haven't watched it yet but um we'll do a switcheroo probably the end of this week where you get into the clear and i get into deadlock um I was worried, I haven't watched it, so you tell me, but this is just kind of the thoughts that come off the trailer. I, w- I don't love like the catering incident or whatever it was called. The what catering are the, what are incident? The, the, the catering oh, I really what like that. The the comedy with the two... Is oh, that... oh, you said that the catering no. show. The ca- yeah, the, you're, the... you're confusing the catering incident, which is a crime drama in Tasmania, and the catering show. Yes, I don't like the catering show, which is is made by the two women who wrote this show. Um, and so get this program comes... Get cracking, those, those yeah. women. This, the trailers make this come across as like the most intentionally ocker, Australiana, try very hard comedy. Um, but you've told me that it kind of nails that sometimes and other times it doesn't. Yes. Um, it's got a 10 episode arc. We're up to episode eight. I think it could probably have finished on eight. I think there's some okay. episodes where it's almost like, is this really essential? Is this dragging a little bit longer than it needs to? I, I do like what's happening in it. There is it's some of the commentary about gender and sexuality that's happening. In the show is done in a really, it's done really well. Uh, and again, sort of looking, putting the microscope on sort of men and women, because there's the notion where they find out the there's a toxicology report, and one of the people who's been murdered, it's almost like, oh no, they've been poisoned, and they're all like, oh, well, it can't be a man, then. it has to be a woman, because men don't use poison. Well, men use violence. Yes, and that's something I hadn't even thought of, and the the ways that they're using gender within the show, 
uh, I find really interesting. Sometimes it's a bit more like, okay, I get it. This is maybe a little heavy-handed, but at other times I really like what's going on. They've got two... Uh, female detectives, one's been seconded from Darwin in and one who's local, but ha- has moved from Sydney to Tasmania. So we've had like the, the lesbian sea change where the town is like a wash of like lesbians who've migrated to Tasmania because this small town in Tasmania is doing its own sort of dark mofo for a month. I was just about to say, what was it? Is it Mona or dark no, mofo? Dark, but it's, it's, dark the, mofo. It's, yeah. the, it's the festival. It's interesting. You were just describing Deadlock and it only just hit me that I actually applied to be part of the writing room for this show. <laughs> it, it literally just hit me. This was like years ago. So they must have been working on this for ages. It must have stopped during COVID yeah. or something. But it was um, it was kind of advertised as like a someone had created the concept and rather than just pull in their own people, they kind of put the word out to anyone who wanted to apply and you just kind of applied and put in your experience and stuff. And I'd never written anything. So obviously didn't get it, but it was like a pathways thing. And it's a um, show that definitely has, it has a core narrative to it, but it's also a vehicle for a lot of B and C plot lines through it. So I can see where the writer's room sort of comes into it. This is not a singular writing. Does it it feel based? Cause it, it, the, the, pitch and stuff and kind of getting people involved is very much like a almost like it was a training program but you're going to work on a real show so it very much sounds like what you just said where it would have been like peak episodic television in the writer's room of like here's our six segments for each episode and here's our colored cards that are a plots now colored cards that are b plots now colored cards that are c plots and what does this character do yes. that interacts and stuff yeah like peak, like this, like card stuck on a whiteboard kind it, of writing it, room it stuff. It certainly is that. And in some cases, I really like what's happening in some of the B and C shots. Um, is it um, Nina Oyama? Sorry? Comedian Nina Oyama? She's fantastic in this. Yeah? And, ju- and just as like how she's been great in other shows. She's really good in Utopia. Yeah, she plays like a... a a very much a supporting role, but she's far more prominent in this and she's fantastic in it. Uh, there's also the, I can't remember as well, I haven't got the IMDb in front of me, but the Kiwi actress that's in it, who's playing one of the detectives that was in, I think, the Breaker Uppers. Um, Not um, Rose Matafeo. Yeah, she was in that Kiwi indie comedy from a couple of years ago and she's also fantastic in this as well. Everybody's doing a great job from an acting perspective. I just think there's a, I think it could have been tied at eight episodes rather than 10, but I really think it's interesting what you've said there. And I don't have a problem with it in the sense of like... Yeah, it, it, it probably really, um, it probably bounces around a lot because it is like, and good good for them to take the chance and do like a kind of traineeship almost thing for a writer's room for a legit show. And maybe that's why it kind of bounces around a bit in quality and tone and stuff. But if the general thing hits somewhere above average on oh, a program like does. that, then then good for them. Um, we should probably get to Tom Cruise. Do you want to have a break first? Yes, let's break and we'll have about 20 minutes at the end. All right, welcome back to the advanced screening. Uh, we are going to do a Hall of Fame uh, top five films Power from Power Rankings, the filmography of Thomas Cruise Mapathor the Fourth. What? Um, future Priest. Thomas Mapplethor the Fourth. That's his real name. That's fucked. Did you know that? That's fucked. It's, it's not <laughs> his real is, teeth either. It's not his real teeth. Um, yeah, he was going to be a priest when he was younger. Do you know that part? 
I, Which is probably why he loves his role as like the savior of Scientology. Because I believe it. I didn't know it, but he it trained sense. for a year before he dropped out. So did Tony Abbott. Ooh, don't put don't put don't put the great Tom Cruise in with Tony Abbott. Um, uh, it is his real teeth. You can tell because I think we've talked about this before. But he's the center of his head does not align with the center of his two front teeth. One of his teeth crosses across and half cuts out the center of his face. Google that next time you look at him. Um, so Harrison Harrison Ford last week, uh, I think we found pretty easy because. It was very easy to define the fact that Harrison Ford has been doing this forever and yet he has like some real top tier just goat adventure films. There's totemic characters that he plays through pop culture. Tom Cruise, if we do what we did with Ford, which is try to keep it to one movie per franchise, he is so diverse outside of that. And that is why I think um, we said at the start that we're going to kind of maybe conflict a little more on this, which is good because he has made so, so many movies. Like um, I think I jotted down here uh, the people he has worked with. So he worked with Martin Scorsese in Color of Money, um, Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July, um, Tony Scott with Days of Thunder where he's a car race driver, Kubrick in Eyedwise Shut where he was like, into sex games with Nicole Kidman. The Idol, but 1999. Essentially the Idol, but no Tedros Tedros, played by the weekend, thank God. <laughs> instead, we've, instead we've got Tom Cruise. Uh, Michael Mann for Collateral, where he's playing a hitman. Um, I've just got a couple things I want to say, that there are clear films in here which are excellent films, that by all accord they're excellent films. I just haven't seen them all. So straight away, something like Days of Thunder and Born of Fourth of July on the list to watch, but I was not born when those films come out, so you can sort of understand, just never got around to it. Yeah, yeah. No, I I have the exact same thing. Half half the ones there where he's worked with all these act, uh, directors that I just mentioned, haven't seen. So it's just the the years they came out and he's the breadth of his filmography to go back uh, is a little too much. It's so hard. I'm just flicking through now. I, I think I know where I'm going to go. So this is... We we did this last week with Harrison Ford where we said, has uh, anyone had a decade like Harrison Ford had in the 80s? And I think we can say that pretty much no one has. And even with Tom Cruise, it's hard to even say he's had a decade because like these... I'm just going to ring out really quickly my list that's like 12 long of what I want to eventually get in the five but these are just going to be the years that he's covered and he's still working so Rain Man in 88 Few Good Men in 92 Jerry Maguire 96 Mission Impossible 96 Magnolia 99 Minority Report 02 Last Samurai 03 Collateral 04 War of the Worlds 05 Ghost Protocol 2011 Jack Reacher 2012 Edge of Tomorrow 2014, Rogue Nation 15, Fallout 18, and Top Gun Maverick 2022. I didn't even have the first Top Gun in there, I've just realized. Like, that is 40 years that he's just like been ticking off every second or third year. He's been nailing like a top tier movie. And yet he has a better, more defined jawline than either of us. Oh, he, uh, more defined pecs, more defined abs. Like, goddamn that man. Um, what uh, what were you thinking of going first? It's really hard, and there's so many good ones in here. And we're do- I'm going to avoid franchises just to begin. 
Um, I actually going to go earlier. I'm going to go Rain Man yep. because of the range that Cruz offers. He's younger there. What he's doing, he's playing a very serious, dramatic role. Um, I, it's a film I really like too. I've got a lot of time for it. And but but it's the start of this Cruz aesthetic that will then yep. lead into the dramatic performances of the nineties, but also the the shades as well. The the black sort of turtleneck sort of thing going on where there's there's a little bit of a hangover aesthetically from Top Gun. So um I haven't seen Rain Man in like twenty years. So I put it down because I know it's a great movie, but I hadn't intended to put it in top five. That's absolutely fine. So we're gonna we'll put it on the list, and then we'll, I reckon we just kind of go ones that we each really want, and then we have to try to argue to get rid sure, of a that's couple because I think we're gonna yeah I think we're gonna do that. Um, I'm gonna put down his 2005 Oprah Winfrey interview <laughs> where he jumps on the couch, as our TV guide called it, the best celebrity meltdown of all time. <laughs> uh, um, no, obviously not. I'm not gonna. That's do up that. there with Ricky uh, Ponting side mouth. <laughs> Ricky Ponting side mouth. Uh, Oh, I, I'm i going to throw out uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Fuck yeah. Are you in? Fucking yeah, man. All right. I'm going to put that on a separate oh, list. I am not a fan Good. of a lot of the crew's sci-fi action films. That I'm all in. It's a fucking great film. It just didn't get... Like, I don't know what happened. I think this was right around... Um, he had a few failures failures in the lead up to it. I think when we just uh, rattled out all the films, he kind of went War of the Worlds in 05 and then do, didn't do anything until Ghost Protocol 2011 and Edge of Tomorrow 2014. So I think people were kind of off the cruise train and this just didn't get promoted. It had a weird title. It was based on like a manga Japanese novel. But this is like Groundhog Day sci-fi action thriller where Tom Cruise comes in and is playing against type where he's like a coward jerk pretending to be strong. He's like a promo man for the military he's trying PR. to enlist. His PR firm got shut down because of the invasion. And so he became a military man who's never fought in his life trying to sell the invasion, defense of the alien invasion to other people. And then essentially he gets told, no, you need to go fight and struggles and dies within two minutes. But in the process of dying, gets the ability to kind of relive the day over and over again and then becomes and learns how to be a badass thanks to the uh, well underused in every other film, but perfect for this movie, Emily Blunt, just playing like the biggest badass ever. What's her character name? Um, Full Metal Bitch. Oh, I, can't yes. remember, I can't remember her actual name, but she wields a, a sword made out of a helicopter propeller because to fight this alien invasion, they all get giant mech suits that enhance their strength and stuff. Um, it's so good. So yeah, Edge of Tomorrow is straight in. Um, I think we've got to dive into the franchises a little bit. Yeah, which one? I think I'm going to go... I'm going to leave one for you because I think you are the more passionate about those. I have one of those seven or eight, which I love, but I'm I'm happy to defer to you. Um, I'm going to go Top Gun Maverick. Good. He saves cinema. I was holding my breath thinking you were going to go to the first Top Gun, which is a cultural artifact of its time and funny to watch, but is nowhere near as good as Maverick. It's nowhere near as good as Maverick. Okay, it's hard to separate these two. Uh, The first one is the greatest comedy of all time. (laughs) 
Intentionally or otherwise? I don't care. It's the greatest comedy of all time. <laughs> it's it's some of the greatest... And oh, I don't actually. I won't finish that sentence. Actually, greatest what? Go on. It's one of the greatest love stories on film. <laughs> I'll ride your tail anytime. Oh yeah, sorry, you weren't talking about him and his actual love interest. No. You're talking about him uh, and Iceman. him and Val Kilmer. <laughs> like that's um, more sexual yes. chemistry. That uh, is, has he had more sexual chemistry with Val Kilmer in that original film than anything else he's ever had with any other person. Probably almost anyone until Jennifer Connelly in Top Gun Maverick. Yes. Okay. Th- thank you for segueing back to the, the only two. The, the only two film. people that's ever made Tom Cruise seem mildly romantic in film are both in the Top Gun movies, and one's Val Kilmer and one's Jennifer Connelly. I think the notion at the time during I introduced you to Top Gun. You did at uh, your Bucks party. No. Or... It was a- Somebody's, I think it was Shane's 30th in Canberra. Oh, and we stayed at the hotel. Yes, and we, and we stayed at the hotel like and we watched it. And I was almost yeah. like, you guys, it's like two, one in the morning. You guys were drunk and it's almost like, sit down. We're going to watch Top Gun. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> and you guys like, oh, this is silly. And within the first five minutes, you guys were fucking laughing. It was like, that was like probably the best time to watch Top Gun for the first time is like at a 30th when you're pissed at 1am in the morning because fuck we were laughing it's so fucking funny um, but 2022 it is funny in parts but Tom Cruise is fucking amazing in that in the sense that he's just playing Tom Cruise but it is he carries it the charisma the the way he owns the screen. And when I say it's screen presence, and these are all sort of words that may or may not mean that much, but it was very clear when we're watching that. It's like, I'm in this for Tom Cruise and I'm cheering for Tom Cruise, even though that I don't know if I even like him that much as an actor, but I'm all in on this film. Um, It hit everything that you want from a big blockbuster film. And I think... It also came at a time when we had pretty much fatigued out of superhero movies and now we're actually in a stage where I don't know how people feel about Marvel and shit like that and we're not talking about um, Secret Invasion this week, maybe next week. (laughs) Yep. I I like that you said like screen presence because it's. I think he's a very, very underrated actor and I think like his personal life is kind of clouded how good he is as an actor because uh maverick as a character was never particularly like i can't wait to see his next journey and i can't wait to see what he does next and oh my god i can't wait for him to come back and then you put him in a movie with some of the best up-and-coming actors who like outshone him not only in stature but like people would say generally ability just based off how they talk about people like um, miles teller and stuff and yet Tom Cruise owns the room every time he's in it. Every time he's in it. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the face and the star factor and, and being maybe the biggest movie star in the world. I don't know. But it's good. It's good. It's very good. Um, all right. I'm happy that Top Gun Maverick goes in. Uh, I'll throw out... You, you did this, so I'll throw out the Mission Impossible. Um, that, that's what I was deferring to. I think this is probably the hardest one. Um, and I'll, I've got a bet. I've, I've got a horse in this race, and I think you know which horse I'm talking about. I think you're talking about Mission Impossible. No, I'm talking about two when they go to Australia with Richard Roxburgh. 
<laughs> of course you are. Directed by John Rue. <laughs> Absolutely. And what's what's the theme music for it? Um, who does the music for us? We're trying. Roll it, roll it, roll it, roll it. Who's that? I'm gonna look it up while I vamp. Um, I want to put Mission Impossible one, but I just can't. I actually think. I don't know if you're going to let me do this. I think all the movies have gotten all kind of better, apart from two, unfortunately. Sorry, they came to Australia, but it's a bad movie. I've got, do you um, want to know who did the theme music for Mission Impossible 2? Who? Limp Biscuit. Oh, no. <laughs> that movie is so of its time. We're going, apply, it we're going to play that over the end of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, okay. You sent me the song. Um, I think... It is number four. I think it's Ghost Protocol. That saves the series in some ways, doesn't it? It really does. This was um, Jeremy. This is the one with Jeremy Renner. It's easy to identify. Like it's the one with Jeremy Renner in it, where they thought he was going to take over. Um, it was the first time that he had kind of worked with Christopher McQuarrie, who that becomes it, right? For the for the next 10, 15 years, Christopher McQuarrie wrote and directed. Number five, Rogue Nation. Number six, Fallout. And he's doing seven and eight, Dead Reckoning, part one and two. He also did um, the Jack Reacher film with Tom Cruise. But he was, I, th- I don't know if he's credited, but he essentially came in to do rewrites on Ghost Protocol because they were like, it's not working, it's not working, we don't know what's happening. And he came in and he essentially said, what's happening is that you're trying to make Jeremy Renner the star of this series and you're trying to bump away Tom Cruise. You can't do that. Ethan Hunt's the character of this series. And they essentially revamped it last minute to make this movie with um, Brad Bird, who was the director, who had never directed a live-action film before. Did you know that? There we go. Can Brad you Bird... remind me of the plot? Because I, I, I'm i not going to apologize for this. They do sort of fuse in together a little bit. They all blend together. So this was the only knock where I was like, Mission Impossible 1 probably has the best plot. 6 probably has the best kind of continuous and thing one is the most distinctive maybe from an a for creating and forming an aesthetic yes um four essentially has like some russian guy who gets his hands on nukes and thinks that the world needs to be cleansed um so he has no intention to bargain or anything he just wants to set the nukes so tenet, off. pretty much yes without the time <laughs> travel <laughs> and without the very confusing um don't worry it, it'll make sense when you feel it blah 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 um, so it was kind of like the plot doesn't matter. They essentially brought in this guy who had only ever directed animated films. Brad Bird had done the Incredibles and he just goes set piece to set piece yeah. to set piece. And that kind of becomes mission impossible. This is the one with the Burj Khalifa on the outside yes. that they did for the real. Yeah. So I'm going ghost Proco. I think that might upset some people, but I think, it really, if that movie didn't do well, then we wouldn't have Tom Cruise the way we do now. We wouldn't be looking forward and you wouldn't to be, Dead Reckoning. The, the franchise dies there and then. Yeah. Similar to when Jeremy Renner came in to take over the Bourne series. For, unfortunately, oh, I actually no. really like that film, but that, that series uh, died. Bourne Legacy. That is a good movie. I feel bad for Jeremy Renner. He's a really good actor. He's so good in Wind River. He's really good in Ghost Protocol. But they were just like, we're not doing Mission Impossible without Tom Cruise. Do you Cruise. think Mission Impossible, and I, I, this might be a really long bow, considering we now live in a world with John Wick, and I haven't seen a lot of John Wick where you've seen all of them. Mm. And the criticism of the, the observation of Avatar 
is the whole idea that it's going to come out every like three or four years or whatever now. And we've just had the most recent one and was we waited the decade, but they are just tech demos of what we can do with visual effects. Yes, the stories of Avatar kind of suck. Real, it's just well, like, look how, look how look at good. Good it looks. The stories of Avatar are just bundling all the bits of James Cameron's past movies and just all funneling it into one new movie, pretty much. Where yep. you've got Titanic, you've got um, The Abyss, but you've also got Terminator. Hey, hey guys, look, we're in the water again. I love the water, you love the water. And so that's sort of seen as like, that. those films are tech demonstrations for special effects. Are the Mission Impossible films just tech demos for physical effects? Or phys- physical it, stunt work? I, I think John Wick is more that. Mission Impossible is built more around very, very good, tense spycraft and action that just so happens to have Tom Cruise specifically do like one massive stunt yeah. or two massive stunts. So it's interesting how they contrast in that sense. But... It, it doesn't really work as a demo because no one will ever do what Tom Cruise is doing. And I think that's kind of why the Mission Impossible movies are so successful. But is anybody doing what James Cameron is doing? They're trying their best, but they're not doing it well. I wonder if James Cameron has his technology patented. Like, why has nobody else been able to do like this? I know he technology? makes... He specifically... Ooh, yeah, that's why. <laughs> Should we talk about it? <laughs> hey, what do you reckon a sub implosion feels like? <laughs> um, oh, I, do you reckon it hurts less when you're worth five billion dollars? I'm staying out of that. I'm just gonna <laughs> like, a bit heavy. direct you to the main body of our submarine podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, episode five: submarine thrillers. <laughs> uh, well, all right. So, Ghost Protocols in. We're actually doing okay. We got three definites in. Um, what do you got next? Uh, cocktail. I, no, that's a I piece put it on my. I put it on my list, but I mean, that's more for like the, the fun of watching Australia's own Brian Brown teach Tom Cruise how to make cocktails and it's, screw women, I assume. It's a weird film. It's a, yeah. it's a funny film, but it's a fucked film and it doesn't make sense and there's no plot to it. It's just flare, it's flare cocktails. I'm, I'm actually going to ditch that. Uh, that's not a serious one. I'm going to go... Uh, it's hard... And I'm oh man. Before you before you go, just to make it harder for you, I've got one, two, three, four, five other movies that I could put in this list. I used to make fun of this film and I still make fun of this film. Oh, and it's probably not my favourite Tom Cruise movie, but Minority Report. Happy. I love Minority Report. He's really if, fucking good in it. I'm putting if you are definite about that, I'm putting it in the definite list because I was I love that movie. I'm ha- oh, I feel like I've left two really good ones out there, and probably my favorite one out there too. But why? Why did you used to make fun of Minority Report? Just the plot. It's sort of funny. You know what I mean? It's it is very like. I, I, I actually kind of feel the same way when I used to watch it and there was like the three, the, the siblings in the, in the pool and they scream and they act weird and stuff. And like the, it's got a weird sheen to the entire movie that Tom, uh, that Steven Spielberg was doing. Like they've essentially rubbed Vaseline on the lens while filming, but Tom Cruise is so good in it. And 
uh, Spielberg's doing stuff with like tech and visual effects in that movie that like I just don't think it's even been replicated. No, since. it really hasn't, and I don't think I really liked it when it came out just because it was so jarring and different. Um, until I rewatched it recently, I completely forgot that Colin Farrell's in Minority Report. Yeah, and he's doing such a good job as well. Like I don't know if it's Spielberg or if these guys were just like fuck Colin Farrell playing alongside Tom Cruise. It's really good. It's got the amazing. I always remember this, the top-down scene of the stingy apartment where the little spider bots are running around scanning everyone's eyes. And it kind of like shows people like mid-sex, mid-cooking, mid-shower getting scanned. And then you can see in this top-down shot, you see like Tom Cruise in a far apartment on the side of screen, like scrambling to find his eyeballs essentially so he can stick them in his head and get scanned. It's a really weird movie, but... Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg working together again. Like, I love it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. There's a Arnie Donna podcast episode. What, what are they called, the the people in the tub? Uh, um, oh, uh, empaths, no. Something like that. Um, where Arnie Donna do a whole episode where they, they remake a Minority Report, Minority Report, but they're pre-cums. <laughs> And so that they are like nobody's allowed to come, and so that they are policing it. So it's almost like, and then, then the whole point is like, I did not come, I did not come. <laughs> oh my god, I've never heard that one. I'll send it to you. Okay, good. I don't think you're gonna want this, but I want to hear your thoughts on Jack Reacher. I understand why you've done it. I don't necessarily agree with it. Do you think it's a good movie though? It's fine. I think Collateral is a better version of it. Okay, fair. Well, I think I think Jack Reach is a really, really like. Yeah, I've I've read all those books, so I'm a bit biased there. But for when it was released, it felt like a kind of old school kind of crime investigative show. Like they don't really make them anymore. So that was uh, Christopher McQuarrie. Um, I think it was his directorial debut, actually, doing Jack Reach with um, Tom Cruise, uh, but. We won't pick it. Um, then I've got I've got two more. So we've got in our maybe pile right now, Rain Man and Minority Report. Yeah. And our definites are Edge of Tomorrow, Top Gun Maverick, and Ghost Protocol. I want to... Can I just now chuck in a couple? Yeah, I was just about to do the same. My last two go. are Collateral. Yes. And... Um, I, I know it's like White Man Savior Complex, but I really, really love The Last Samurai. I get that. And again, the aesthetics that are going on there. I'm all in and collateral with Michael Mann, so there's no issues with that there from my end. Well, let, let's talk about that then before you throw out your last two. Sure. Um, what's, what's collateral? Oh, so it... I've, I've tried to... I, I want you to describe it because I've tried to... Uh, as we like lead up to Dead Reckoning, we've already done all the Mission Impossibles. So every, every time I see it on the Netflix spin wheel, I kind of mention it to Britt and try to explain it to her. And she's like, I don't want to watch Tom Cruise as a bad guy. So is he go from less there. of a bad guy, but is he like 2004? We're not really associated with an anti-hero. That's a good point because he isn't. He is a contract killer, but he's a nice guy about it, at least to Jamie Foxx's character, and he seems to do some good he's things. Barry. So before Barry, hundred percent, hundred percent. These days, he'd be Barry. He'd be Walter White. He'd be Tony Soprano. He'd be all these people that are anti-heroes. But at that, when that came out at the time, it was like, holy shit, Tom Cruise is a bad guy. Yeah, and people aren't into it. 
gray hair, gray suit, Tom Cruise. That's that's a really good movie. That the the summary of that is that Tom Cruise is an assassin and hijacks uh, he a taxi hires hires Jamie Foxx to drive him around the city as he goes in and murders people. And like Jamie Foxx doesn't realize it at the time, but I think it becomes clear pretty quickly. Doesn't he like tell him after the first murder, like this is what I'm yeah, doing yeah. and I'll kill you and your family if you don't drive me around to do it essentially. Yeah, no, no, that's it. That's the plot, mate. That's it. It's great. And it's Michael Mann who made Heat. So I'm always going to be a sucker for that. Um, I've got two. Well, we've got four. So we need one more. We've got Rain Man and Monorail Report, and you've got two more you want to throw out. Jerry Maguire like, has to be in the conversation, how it hasn't come up yet. It's almost like that. that is his best iteration of the, the Hollywood sort of star, but not in action. As in like, I'm, you know, the heartthrob. And I'm going to act the house down. And is that the most quotable line from all of his films? Show me the yeah. money. It it's is. Dated now. I, I've, I know it's a great movie. I know he's fantastic in it. I've just never wanted to rewatch it. Yeah, and I can understand that. But we can go maybe list. Well, I'm, and then I everything in the maybe list so far is yours. So I'll let you make the final well, decision. I'm going to what I think is actually his. Besides, MI one. Because I love that film. I think this is his second most watchable performance. You go in Eyes Wide Shut because of all the weird sex? A few good men. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he, like, he goes toe-to-toe with Nicholson and it stands up and he's fucking great. And it's almost like, I think better with my bat. Where's my bat? And again, films that aren't made anymore. Weird courtroom drama. Jag. Jag shit. <laughs> Yeah. Jag before Jag the TV show. Um, who's uh, who's playing the the co-investigator with him? The the woman? Demi Moore. Demi Moore, um, really good in that. It. I I think I know what I want to pick, but like if you had to choose, give me your breakdown now on Rain Man, Minority Report, Jerry Maguire, and a few good men. Fuck. Um, if I'm just like gut. Minority Report and A Few Good Men. I said to you when you picked it that I absolutely love Minority Report. Um, I think it's a really, really good movie, but I would probably go A Few Good Men. Sure. I think I think you sold me in your first line when you said it's young Tom Cruise going toe-to-toe with Jack Nicholson kind of like, at his peak yes. before he even became old man Jack Nicholson. And if we're doing a top five Hall of Fame, like we have Edge of Tomorrow, Maverick, um, Ghost Protocol and Clara, we need something in there that kind of shows the fact that he could actually do really, really good drama work as well. With a Sorkin script, it's almost like the sort of role that Rob Lowe would have done. You know what I mean? But it's better because it's Tom Cruise is in it. Because it's Tom Cruise. And if we, like, you... Gave them up, but like Rain Man, Jerry Maguire, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, like all these movies that... It bats so deep. It's so hard to think of them and how good Tom Cruise was in those because he kind of refuses to do it now. It's like, I'm doing these stunts, I'm doing Maverick, I'm doing Fallout, I'm, I'm doing Tom Mission Cruise Impossible. And you're going to see these fucking stunts that I've done and we're going to do a promo for it 12 months in advance and I'm going to save cinema. Pretty much. And you did. 
So hats off to him. I've got one thing I wanted to add. It's not going to go in the five, but I think it, it, you could argue it's his greatest performance. Are you going to say either uh, as Austin Powers at the start of Austin Powers or as Les Grossman at the uh, throughout uh, Tropic, Tropic Thunder? Thunder man. <laughs> Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> I had them both down as things we should mention at some point, but we've just been going, going and going, talking about how good he is. Um, I think we can wrap it up there. I think that's a good I'm spot. looking forward to uh, our cinema watching recommendation, which we'll uh, throw out next week for the best way to watch Oppenheimer and Barbie on the same day on July 27th. So we'll talk about that next week. By dropping acid. Before or after Barbie? Both. During <laughs> both. Um, all right. Uh, I will chat to you. Uh, I think they're calling it um, Barbenheimer. So we'll talk Barbenheimer in a week's time. See you See then, you, mate.